0: Tonight's scripture reading comes from Mark, chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came from the tomb to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, "'What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Swear to God that you won't torture me.' For Jesus had said to him, "'Come out of this man, you evil spirit.' Then Jesus asked him, what is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the evil spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man— And all the people were amazed. This is God's Word.
1: We're looking at the uh, book of Mark, the life of Jesus, and tonight we come to not only the longest and most vivid and detailed account in the book of Mark, but the longest and most detailed and vivid account in the entire Bible of an exorcism, of an exorcism of demons. And uh, it tells us three things. We're going to learn here, if we look at this tonight, about the complexity of evil, the pattern of how evil works in a life, and how it can be defeated. The complexity of evil, the pattern of evil, and how it can be defeated. Uh, So, first of all, let's start right off the top. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. According to the Bible, there be demons here. There are demons and I think it's very natural for contemporary New York people to say, you don't really believe there's demons? In this day and age, do you really believe there's demons? So I, if you don't mind, I would, with all due respect, I would like to turn the question back. Why not believe in demons? Let me ask you, why not believe in demons? Well, I guess there's a couple of possible responses. The first is to say, well, it's just it's irrational and illogical to believe in demons in this day and age. And I guess I'd like to say, okay, let's, why? Why would that be? If you are absolutely sure God couldn't exist, then it's perfectly logical and consistent to say, I don't believe in demons. But if you're like most people, see, most people know that it's virtually impossible to make a case proving that God couldn't exist. And therefore, the vast majority of people believe God could exist or does exist but you see it is illogical and it is irrational to believe that personal supernatural good could exist but that personal therefore personal supernatural evil couldn't see if personal supernatural good could exist why in the world could personal supernatural evil not exist and why wouldn't it so there's nothing irrational illogical about believing in demons well you say well it's primitive because you see people used to believe in demons when we didn't understand how the world worked We used to believe in demons when we really didn't understand how complex things were. It used to be that people didn't understand the diseases and mental illness uh, and epilepsy. They didn't understand what these things were, so they just attributed it all to demons. They were simplistic and naive about how things worked. Well, maybe that's the case of many ancient people, but not so of the Bible. As a matter of fact, the biblical understanding of demons is part of the most complex, least simplistic, least naive, most multidimensional, most nuanced view of reality that I think exists. Why? Why so? Well, uh, for example, in Matthew chapter four twenty four, we read this. News about Jesus spread, and people brought to him the ill, the demon-possessed, lunatics, the paralyzed, and he healed them all. Now, that's really interesting. First of all, it shows definitely, definitively, that the Bible uh, uh, differentiates the demon-possessed from the diseased. They don't attribute diseases to the demon-possessed. They knew the difference between a physiological and a demonic uh, uh, issue. But more than that, what's interesting is it says they also brought not only the diseased and the demon-possessed, but lunatics. Now, that's an old word, and today, the word lunatic is a pejorative word. It's really an insult Uh, and... and, uh, really not a good word to use in general, but the original meaning, the original meaning of the Greek word literally meant, in the Greek lexicon, any kind of insanity, irrational behavior, or seizures. Anyone characterized by insanity, irrational behavior, or seizures, which means that the Bible understood the difference between insanity, mental illness, epilepsy, disease, and demon possession. They understood all of that. The biblical writers understood that, and some years ago I read uh, a very interesting um, sermon by Richard Baxter, uh, who was a uh, was English preacher in the 17th century. He preached this at the uh, at Cripplegate at St Giles in Cripplegate in London in something like uh, 17 uh, 1670s. And one of his sermons is entitled quote, "What are the best preservatives against melancholy and overmuch sorrow?" So that's why preaching was better back then. They had better titles. So you hear that. What are the best preservatives against melancholy and overmuch sorrow? Which, of course, means it's a sermon on depression. And if you if you read the thing, and I was just I was actually blown away by this. This is I read this quite a long time ago, twenty years ago. He says, according to the Bible, if you're depressed, there could be four four different uh, bases for your depression. At least, he says. First of all, you could have a physiological basis for your depression and what could be required is is nutrition and medicine or just rest secondly he says there could be a moral basis for your depression which has to do with guilt and shame and there the requirements are confession and forgiveness and grace thirdly he says you might have a mental or psychological basis for your depression you might be extremely cast down extremely discouraged you might be extremely weary uh, emotionally and worn out. And you need, in that case, you need love and, and support and talk and community. But then, fourthly, he says there may be an evil, demonic route to your depression, in which case you need prayer and the Word of God. What was so striking about that, do you not see? That most, there are, some worldviews basically say, some worldviews are more materialistic than the Bible. And therefore, the answer is take a pill. And some worldviews are more psychological than the Bible. And the answer is talk and acceptance. Always say. And some worldviews are much more pharisaical and moralistic than that of the Bible. And therefore, if there's something wrong in your life, you should always just you just need to do the right thing and you need to obey and you need to confess your sins and do it right. And many worldviews are superstitious, more superstitious than the Bible. And they see demons everywhere, and they see the devil behind everything that's wrong with it. There's a demon that has to be cast out. But the Bible itself is far more nuanced, far more multidimensional, far, more, uh, far less reductionistic than any of these other worldviews that we've got. I refuse refuses ever to reduce our problems to a single plane and never has a default mode. It must be physiological, it must be mental, it must be moral, it must be, uh, must be spiritual. Instead, what the Bible says, and I remember this sermon very, very well, it says these four, these four elements, just the four we mentioned, are interlocking. And they could actually work in a certain person's life in all sorts of different forms and ways of relating and levels. And therefore, there's no template for figuring out because evil and misery and problems and difficulties in our lives are complex. And if you move out into the world with a less nuanced and less complex understanding than the Bible, if you think basically your problems are physical or basically mental or basically moral or basically spiritual if you don't see the complexity of what the Bible says about evil, that it's out there and in here, that it's natural and supernatural, that it's individual and corporate, it's going to defeat you. And not only that, the fact that the Bible talks about demons, uh, personal, uh, personal spiritual evil forces in the world, on top of everything else, that actually explains the intransigence and the intractability of so many of our human problems. For example, it explains the intransigence and intractability of our psychological problems. In, um, in 1 Timothy, Paul says, If you're proud, you'll fall into the trap of the devil. And in Ephesians, Paul says, If you're bitter, if you're just bitter, if you just hold a grudge, you fall under the influence of the devil. Which is to say, according to the Bible, that demonic forces stir up and aggravate all of the other factors that mess up your life. They aggravate, they, 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 uh, they stir them up, they, they, inter- they intertwine them, they entangle them. And that is one of the reasons why so many of our emotional and psychological problems are like, our, our emotional dungeons are double locked. That's why there's so many of them are so deep. It's complicated. And not only does, uh, does the, the, uh, the existence of personal supernatural evil forces explain the intractability and intransigence of our psychological problems, but especially it explains the uh, intransigence and the uh, intractability of our social problems. People for years have note, noted now that there are certain social systems that are so evil that are destroying people, that are just grinding people, And yet, when you actually look at the individuals inside the social system, none of them are all that bad. Isn't that interesting? In other words, the systems themselves are awful, and they're ruining people. And yet, when you go inside and look at the individuals in the system, it's not all that bad. The people aren't that bad. They're not that bad. They're not that different than you. So how can they be doing all this evil? And the answer is what? What do you think? The answer is, it's very very possible for demonic forces to inhabit a system the way they can inhabit a person. Uh, this really came home to W. H. Auden, you know, the great uh, Auden was a great British poet, as you know. And during World War II, he was living p- uh, temporarily in Yorkville, right here, you know, the eastern part of the Upper East Side, and it was a uh, at that time it was a German neighborhood largely. And in 1939 or else, it was late 39 or early 1940, he went to see a movie in Yorkville which was basically a Nazi propaganda movie uh, giving the Nazi spin on the invasion of Poland. And he was absolutely stunned. His life totally changed because of that movie because he went into that movie and, he's, and, and when Polish people showed up on the screen, members of the audience, people that he knew, his neighbors, people who he knew weren't all that bad would get up and they would shake their fists at the screen when they saw the polls and say kill them now it's very interesting that if you if you if you look you go look this up in the biographies of auden auden was so shaken he said basically after that experience he lost his faith in atheism he was an atheist but he lost his faith in atheism because he realized that he did not have anything in his belief system that could account for what he was seeing number 1 he realized that if there was no god then we're all just a We're just the product of evolution. We're the product of the strong eating the weak, right? We're just the product of that. And he had no basis for saying to the Nazis, you can't do that. In fact, he even wrote about it afterwards, and he realized, he says, you know, the secular English intellectuals, they want to complain to heaven against the Nazis, but they don't believe in heaven. There's no heaven to complain to anymore. And so what are they going to do? But even more than that, he realized unless he had to believe in God and sin and demonic forces, he could not account for how people who were relatively okay people could be sucked in to a system and the system be incredibly evil even though almost everybody in the system was not. It is impossible, Auden was right, it is impossible to account for all of the evil and wickedness and the things that people do in this world strictly by attributing it to human factors, strictly by saying, well, it's just bad choices or bad family nurture or an inequitable distribution of, 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 of uh, resources. That can't account for it. It doesn't account for it. And if you move out into the world with a less complex and grave and solemn understanding of evil than the Bible has, you are going to be defeated by it. If you think, oh, if we can just get ourselves together, get our best minds together together, You know, get the best practice together, get the technology. And if we really, we can deal with all of our human problems. And this text is trying to say you can't without God. To to paraphrase Hamlet, (laughs) there are more things in heaven and earth than can be dealt with by your abilities. Of course, he said there are more things in heaven and earth that are dreamt of in your philosophies. And what he's trying to say, you can't attribute everything just to human uh, mistakes and human choices. Do you not realize that? Do you see that? So that's the first thing. See the complexity of evil. The second thing we learn, however, here, and this is, by the way, this is the most, maybe you're already discouraged, but uh, I wanted to say this is the most chilling of the three points by far. Secondly, this text tells us something about the pattern of how evil works in a life. I'm afraid that our English translation, uh, our English translations using the term demon possessed give us a false sense of security when we read about this. Okay, even if you believe in it, okay, let's say you believe in it, but you look at these poor people, and you say, poor demon-possessed people, they've been possessed by demons. We haven't. There's only a few people like this. I've never actually seen one, you say, so maybe it exists, but it's very rare. Except the Greek words that describe demon-possessed people never use the term possessed. It's just a simple uh, Greek verb that basically there's a word demonized is the word. These are demonized people. But don't forget what we just said. Paul says if you're proud, if you're bitter, if you're self-centered, you make yourself open somewhat to the influence of the evil forces in this world that are seeking to disintegrate what God wants together, disintegrate bodies, disintegrate relationships, disintegrate creation, disintegrate the environment, disintegrate... In other words, evil forces want to break apart what God wants together. And when you, according to Paul, when you in any way are proud or selfish or do anything like that, you actually, to some degree, to some degree, are also being influenced. And therefore, the difference between the demon-possessed and us is a difference not of quality but of quantity. Because the same patterns are at work in our lives that you see in the demon-possessed. You say, well, what is that pattern? Well, here's what the pattern is. Let's take a look at it. The man lived... This is very vivid, is it not? This is, like I said, this is one of the most vivid and detailed descriptions. In the, in, it is in the Bible of an exorcism. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and in the hills... He would cry out and cut himself with stones. Now, I want you to consider something. When you make a pact with evil, on the one hand, empowered. He's, greater, he's got greater strength, kind of superhuman strength. Nobody can subdue him. He's, he gets an enormous power from having made a pact in evil. At the same time, he's a slave. His humanity is being eaten out from the inside. He doesn't know who he is. He's got a multiple personality. Multiple is kind of an understatement when you see how many people there are in a legion. Greater empowerment, but at the same time, inner enslavement and a loss of a sense of self. Well, you say, well, that's really awful. Of course, and that's the way all Faustian legends and stories go. What is Faust? What is the Faust myth, the Faust pattern? The Faust pattern is you sell your soul to the devil, you get something more, and yet you're enslaved. My favorite, by the way, Faust legend is Damn Yankees, and it's probably because I also am a middle-aged man who would just love you know, to have my 25-year-old body back so I could play in the major leagues. Of course, like all 55-year-old men, I would never want my 25-year-old mind, uh, which means Damn Yankees seems to be, wow, this is the ideal. You have your 55-year-old mind, you have your 25-year-old body, you're playing for the uh, you know, major leagues. But if you read Damn Yankees, of course, the sadness of it is Lola also has sold her soul. She has beauty. You get power, You get athleticism, you get beauty, but you're a slave. You say, oh, yeah, those are interesting stories. Okay, let's bring it down to earth. If you make anything more important to your meaning in life, more important to your your self-image, more important to your sense of self-worth, more important to your happiness than the Lord, if you make anything more important than the Lord, it is your master. You've made a pact with it. Oh, you can say, well, I believe in Jesus, I believe in God, I believe in all this. I'm talking about what your heart, what is your heart centering on? What is, the, what is the real thing that makes you want to get up in the morning? What is the real thing that drives you, what is the real thing that makes you feel great about yourself? Whatever it is, is your master. That's why Becky Pippert has this classic phrase in her book, Out of the Salt Shaker. She says, the person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by the people he or she wants to please. But there's one thing that is certain. No one controls themselves. We are controlled by the Lord of our lives. You've made a pact with somebody. You are not. You think you're in charge. You're not in charge. And whatever is the center of your life, the main thing you're seeking, the thing, if I have that, then I'll be okay, then I'm okay, then I'll, then I'll be happy, then I know who I am, then my life means. Whatever you, whatever you center your life on, you've made a pact. Let's just take one example. How about your career? I'm sure there's two or three people in New York City who have done this. What if your career, regardless of your religious beliefs or whatever else, regardless of, you know, whether you meditate, regardless of whether you've given your life to Jesus, regardless, if the main thing, your main, the main fuel of your life is your career, that's how you know you're special. That's what you're really after. That's what gives you meaning in life. On the one hand, that pact will give you power. Oh, it will. You'll be driven and you'll probably do better than other people in your field who aren't as driven as you, who haven't made the pact. You know, they want to be actors, or they want to be businessmen or women. They want to be dancers. They want, You know, they want what they want, but they don't want it as much as you, because for you, it's everything. On the one hand, you'll probably do better. You'll be driven, you know? You'll move up the ladder. But on the other hand, you'll be a slave. You see, if any... Why? Well, first of all... There's a tendency when your career is the most important thing in your world to exploit other people and to trample on other people on the way up. So you make a lot of enemies. Secondly, there's a a possibility, of course, that you'll cut ethical corners, which, of course, can haunt you later on. Thirdly, you'll just be driven into the ground physically, even though in the short run you'll do well. Physically, it'll drive you into the ground. Fourthly, you'll put career over relationships. You'll put career over love. You'll put career over romance. You'll put career over everything... And find out later on you squandered all your opportunities. And more and more and more, you will find yourself enslaved. Because if anything is more important to you than Jesus Christ, as your functional happiness, your functional meaning in life, your functional hope, that is a Faustian bargain. And you have moved into the Faustian realm. Do you recognize that? Do you see the pattern? Huh? It's no different. It's just a matter of degree. And the other thing that's so sort of frightening about this, this, I told you this is the most depressing point. We'll move on to the feeling better point in a minute. But uh, I, I've been always taken by this spot where it says, This man lived in the tombs and no one could bind him anymore. Which means that evil is gradual. That the patterns of evil, the patterns of greater empowerment, but enslavement, of course. In the beginning, you feel the power much more than the enslavement, but slowly, slowly, slowly over the years, things change. And evil is almost always something that that doesn't come after you frontally; it sneaks up on you. So, for example, evil—the devil never comes to you and says, "Oh, I'll make you a deal." It never does. In spite of the Lola and the and the you know and Faust and Mephistopheles and all that stuff, generally speaking, the devil does not come to you and say, "I'll tell you what—you can make partner." but you're going to have to grind the face of the poor by investing in companies and products that, that, that exploit vulnerable families. You're not going to say, okay. <laughs> and yet, slowly, bit by bit by bit, you can be sucked into one of those systems of evil that are grinding people under the ground, and you're part of it. You don't even realize it. You're a pawn of the devil. Or, you see, the devil doesn't come to you and say, I'm going to uh, uh, give you such obsession over your career that eventually you're going to find that all of your loved ones and your family will actually leave you because you're so distracted and distant from them because of your obsession with work. You're not going to say, okay. But that's, see, and yet you can end up in the tombs cutting yourself and wondering, how in the world did I get here? You know, gradually is the answer, (laughs) gradually. So there's the complexity of evil that we learned, and there is the pattern of evil that we learned. But last of all, how then can we defeat it if this is the way it works? And if everybody, according to the Bible, according to St. Paul and Paul the New Testament, if everybody to some degree or another is participating in this, and the patterns of evil are to some degree in our lives. Everybody, because nobody centers completely, in spite of what they believe, nobody centers completely on the Lord. And puts their hearts of trust and rest completely in that. It's other things that we make these pacts with. What are we going to do? How are we going to defeat evil? Okay. Thirdly, we defeat evil by recognizing the source of the power to defeat evil and connecting to that power. Recognizing the source and connecting. Well, who's the source? Who do you think? When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran. Now look at this. Here's a man who is possessed by a legion of demons. And the word legion is a Roman word that means, well, something like 6,000. You know, I studied this. Julius, in the days of Julius Caesar, it was 3,500, and by the end of the Roman Empire, it was 8,000, but it's thousands, okay? And yet when this man, possessed by a legion of demons, gets into the presence of God, there's, in the presence of Jesus, there's no struggle. He's down on his knees. And the most interesting thing is that Jesus says to him, Come out. Now, do you realize that we have all kinds of examples of exorcisms, not not in the Bible so much, there are a few, but in in the literature of the ancient Near East, especially Egyptian literature, we have all kinds of descriptions of how to cast out demons and deal with evil spirits. And what Jesus does here is absolutely unprecedented. There's nothing else like it anywhere in ancient literature. Because every time anybody ever tries to deal with with a, a devil, a demon, they always, always call on a higher power they always call on a higher power in fact and here's it's almost comedic by the way one of the most ironic and comedic aspects of this is that the devil tries to do it to jesus because when the man comes running he falls down and he says what do you want with me jesus son of the most high swear to god it basically i adjure you before god don't torture me that's actually the form of an exorcism I adjure you before God, calling on a higher power. The demons try to exercise Jesus. Because everybody who ever tries to do exorcism of a a hostile power always calls on a higher power. But Jesus alone in the history of the world, in ancient literature, does not call on any higher power. Doesn't say, by the most high God, I never. Look at this power. This is exactly how he deals with a hurricane last week. And not only that, he deals with the 6,000 demons the way he deals with one. There's almost like no difference. There's no, he doesn't work up a sweat. He doesn't roll up his sleeves. He doesn't say, I adjure you. He says, come out. He doesn't call on a higher power. And what does that mean? What does that mean? We mentioned it last week. He is the higher power. He's the higher power. He is power itself. He is power himself. And that is absolutely astounding. And even though you have a legion of 6,000 negotiating, of course, with Jesus, there is no question that he's got this, the legion has got to get permission to do anything. When the legion of demons, when an army of demons meets Jesus, there's absolutely no contest. There's not even a struggle. So Jesus casts out the demon because he's got the power. And by the way, uh, just, just a note or two on how he does it. <laughs> when modern readers read this thing, you know, when they see how Jesus casts out the demon, when modern readers read this thing, they say, what's up with the pigs? <laughs> what is with that? And, of course, what I did was, I, uh, I must say that, that uh, there's, there's, it's, there's a lot of questions that I'm not going to answer right now about the pigs. I checked out, honestly, and I don't, I'm not trying to brag, but I checked about 25 different scholarly sources to see, you know, what in the world, I, I was basically saying, what is up with the pigs? And I was looking at them all. One of the things that there's, there's not much consensus, but there is this kind of consensus. Let me tell you what, what I learned. Number one, this was not made up. This is unprecedented. There's nothing anywhere in the Bible, nothing anywhere in other ancient literature. There's nothing. This isn't the sort of thing that anybody would have made up. It's really, really weird. It is really weird. And they all say this almost, almost certainly, there would be no reason for Mark to put it in here uh, <laughs> unless it happened. And so there's pretty, great, pretty good consensus that this really happened. Secondly, the consensus is we have no idea exactly what's going on. We, we don't have 1% of 1% of the knowledge of how spirits relate to bodies and how de- the demons relate to the earth enough to understand what's going on here. But we do know that the demons are saying, in Matthew, by the way, that we do know the demons said, you don't have a right to torture us before the time. It doesn't mention it in Mark, but in Matthew it tells us, the demon says, you don't have a right to torture us before the time. And, and it could be that, would, that, that that's the case, that the, it's on Judgment Day that you utterly destroy and send them out of the world. So what Jesus is saying is, no human host for you. No human host for you. And they go into the pigs, and they rush down you know, into the, into the uh, water, and they drown. And uh, most of us modern New Yorkers look at that and say, oh, those poor little pigs. But you have to remember that for the people at the time, the readers at the time, the issue wasn't the poor little pigs. You know, they didn't have our sort of sentimental approach to things. Rather, what they were saying is, look at all that money. Because that was a lot of money. 2,000 pigs was a lot of money. That was wealth. And so what are we learning here? Here's what we learn, even from the crypticness of this. Number one, when Jesus Christ defeats evil in your life, you better not try to tell him what the game plan is going to be. You have no idea because he knows things that you don't know. He's got his own way of doing it. Don't tell him how it's got to happen. it almost certainly surprise you, as surprising as this is. But number two, Jesus is trying to say here that all the wealth in the world is not worth one human soul. In order to save a human being, to lose a, a fortune, so what? Even all of your wealth is not worth losing your soul over. So Jesus has the power, and he casts out the devils. But how do you and I connect with that? And this is actually something that struck me fairly near the end of my studying this passage. Because one of the problems we have here is the very word evil. When we start talking about, yes, there's evil in the world. We're not relativists. We believe in real evil. There's evil out there. A problem, a problem arises. The Jews of the time considered the source of all their problems to be the Romans. And as far as the Jews at the time were concerned, the Romans were unclean pigs. And the best thing you could possibly do, if you're the Messiah, you're the Messiah, Jesus, best thing you could possibly do is go into the region of the Gentiles and the Romans, and that's where this was, the Decapolis, was a Gentile region where they raised pigs, which the Jews would never do. Jesus, if you're the Messiah, you should go into the Roman er, uh, uh, world, you should go into the Gentile world, those unclean pigs, and you should just drive them to the sea and get out your sword. What does Jesus do? He goes into the Roman area, he goes into the Gentile area, and instead he heals a Gentile man. See, the reason why he doesn't get out his sword, and here's the problem with calling somebody evil. to Say the Romans, if we just deal with the Romans, that's all of our problems. They're the evil one. But Jesus doesn't do that. Instead, when Jesus goes there, he shows us that the legions that are really causing our problem are not out there. They're inside of us. And by healing a Gentile man, what he is trying to say is pretty much, I think, what Solzhenitsyn said very well lately, which is the line between good and evil goes right down the middle of every human heart. You better not identify them out there or that out there as the evil. and I'm the good and that's the evil. Don't you dare. Don't you dare. So how, if we aren't supposed to smite the evil ones, which just simply just keeps the cycle of violence going on, that's the great danger with identifying a body or a person or a class of people or a nation. They're the evil ones. Let's go smite them in the name of, of, you know, good over evil. Jesus, instead of, he goes into the area of the unclean. He goes into the area of the Roman pigs. and He goes into the area of the Gentile unclean pigs and he heals one. So what, what, what are we supposed to do about evil? Here's what we have to do. When Jesus went into that realm, he healed that man. And you notice what we see? When he's all done, it says... He was clothed, uh, and he was dressed, clothed, in his right mind, sitting there. How wonderful. But you know what? At the end of the book of Mark, we're going to see Jesus and this man exchanging places. At the end of the book of Mark, Jesus is naked, stripped of even his clothes. At the end of the book of Mark, Jesus is crying out and bleeding. At the end of the book of Mark, Jesus is driven into the tombs, into the tomb. That is how Jesus dealt with evil. He didn't deal with, If he had taken out a sword and began smiting the Romans, driving them into the sea, what would have happened? He would, he would have bought a little bit of political liberation for a few people just for a few years. But instead, what Jesus Christ did was that he absorbed evil and injustice and sin and death into himself. He died on the cross to pay for our sins so that someday he could wipe out evil without wiping out us. And that is the secret to how evil is defeated in your life. I'll tell you why. Number one, only when you see what it cost him to defeat evil. What it cost him so that he could someday destroy evil without destroying you. So he could heal you like he did the demoniac. So he can come into your life in spite of all the things we've done wrong. When you see the cost, when you see him being willing to be naked and driven to the tombs for you, that shows you how much he loves you. That shows you your infinite value to him. And you don't have to look at your career. You don't have to look at anything else and say, I need that and then I'll know who I am. It's seeing the cost that he paid, the infinite cost that he paid in order to defeat evil that defeats evil in your life. Did you hear that? That's, just, that's not a gimmick. It's only when you see the cost of what he did. when only when you see how much he loved you. Only when you see him being driven into the tombs. Him being stripped naked. Him crying out. Him bleeding. When you see him doing that for you. What that actually does is it says, that I am loved. I am delighted in. And now you can look at these good things that you turn into ultimate things. And the pact is over. Now your career is just a career. It's not your, it's, it's not your righteousness. It's not your glory. It's not your beauty. And nothing else is either. And it destroys the power of those things in your life. And secondly, only if you see what Jesus actually did with evil. He didn't identify a single group of people as evil and, and just started smiting them. Instead, he forgave them at cost to himself. And if you don't see what he did to defeat evil in your life, if you just go out there thinking, there's the evil, I'm the good, there's the evil, I'm the good, you'll just be part of the evil. You'll be, you'll be duck soup for the devil. You'll be just sucked into the cycle of retaliation and violence that's going on in this world. And you really won't be defeating evil at all because as Paul says, looking at the cross in Romans chapter 12, he says, never repay evil for evil, but overcome evil with good. I don't care how messed up you are. Look how messed up this guy was. Look how broken he was. God, Jesus Christ, sends him back into his own land as a vehicle, as an agent of redemption and healing. He says, go back to your own people and spread the news, and be a vehicle for my redemptive power in their lives. And you can do that, O demoniac, not in spite of the fact that you're such a mess, but now you've been healed, but because you were such a mess, no matter how messed up you are. Plunge your messed upness into the grace of Jesus Christ, and you can be a powerful tool for redemption in the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that there is an utter defeat for evil. But we also see the patterns of it and the complexity of it, the power of it. We ask that you would help us by the power of your spirit deal with it. Deal with it. And as we now participate in the Lord's Supper, make what your son did to defeat evil for us real to us. That evil can be defeated even as we contemplate his dying love. We ask this in Jesus' name.